And behold, he cometh with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to destroy all the ungodly and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The Book of Enoch. Hello, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heine. We're going to talk about giants today. Zelwyn, how are you? I think I think this is going to be the season opener. How's it been going? Oh, it's been going good. I know we left off, what, back in July of this year, if I remember correctly? Yep. And uh, we, I went on a Short little vacation in that time, was able to get home, visit some family, which was really nice just to be able to do that, you know, spend some time with my wife. It was, it was, it was a good July and then got back into things and have just been, you know, plugging along. Um, the garden is coming in really well. We've kind of had an odd year for tomatoes. I don't know if you have much in your, if you have any problems with your garden, but well, everything just grows really nicely in Arkansas. I've got uh, some nice high tobacco that's way late in the season, just look, looking pretty. And you're going to dry it in the, the fellowship hall? Is that what you're going to do? We, we just might. We just might. We, we, we should do yeah, Zion Lutheran Avila chewing tobacco. I really think this is the new fundraiser. Forget Little Caesar's Pizza Kit. We're doing chew. <laughs> I love it. Hey, we, you, can, you, can, you can do something with that. But our, our tomatoes have been kind of weird because the the plants got really large this year, but they refuse to ripen. Uh, I have all kinds of green tomatoes, but they don't Ooh, want to ripen. There's, there's a sermon illustration right there. You grow big but refuse to mature. Hmm. Something about a fig tree. I like yeah. it. Let's, uh, let's, let's, let's think about that. <laughs> well, and I mean, because the other the other fruits have been doing really well. I mean, the cucumbers came in with a vengeance, and uh, the potatoes are doing really well. And you know, I even got quite a few jalapenos that we canned this year, which is which is really good. It's it's been a good year. Yeah. Um, well, that's interesting. I didn't think you'd be a jalapeno man. I love what, hot things. What is just not hot places? True. <laughs> so, so what does jalapeno lefsa taste like? <laughs> um, potatoey. Yeah, we've been uh, plugging along here in the summer. No vacation, just hot, just working. You know, locking it down, keeping things going. You know, I I, I apparently donate all of my vacation days to Aaron Upoff and David Apple. So that so that I you know I I walk so they can run. <laughs> but anyway, those boys will be back here very soon. We're trying to get a conclave convened. Coming up on a 140th anniversary here for Zion, so we're getting preparations ready for that anniversary festival, so that's going to be fun. We'll celebrate that. We're going to do an old-timey kind of throwback liturgy. I'll don the Geneva gown, and we'll break it. We'll dust off TLH as the Lord intended. So It'll be a good time. You know, every everything's going to revive, and there will be... Glory down in Arkansas. I mean, right. I, don't, I don't. I don't know what else to do with it. So. I mean, I really do want to do more uh, outdoor services here, but they have to be in the fall because summer outdoor services are just people are going to melt. But maybe we should do them anyway. You know, people used to be tougher. They used to put on linen suits and go out and go to camp meetings and stuff. Can a Lutheran have a camp meeting? That's a, that. That should be an episode. And maybe it will be an episode in the future. Right, Luther. How to conduct a Lutheran camp meeting and still keep your soul <laughs> would would be good. Uh, so we've gotten a lot of feedback from the listeners over the break. We've got some excellent suggestions for episodes, so we're really excited for the next conclave, really excited for, for some of these upcoming episodes. I think we're going to have some really rather provocative stuff. We don't mean to be edgelords, but... You know, there's going to be some stuff that's going to stick in some people's craws, and that's going to be good. Uh, today's episode might be one. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Nephilim. We're going to talk about giants, what that means. And I don't think we're going to take the the normie approach to this. We're going to take what what did they believe at Jesus in Jesus' day? What did Jesus believe about this? <laughs> 
Well, I mean, it's 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 one of those things where I think we kind of fell into this this weird position of being the the Lutheran edge lords on topics because I don't know because we tackle things that others don't. Well, and look, if I'm not the Lutheran Art Bell, then what am I? What am I doing with my life? You know, why live? Right. The whole podcast would be this kind of stuff if not for Zelwyn's mediating presence. <laughs> so you're, you're gonna you're gonna blame me, is what you're saying? Yeah, I'm gonna blame you until we finally uh, have a you know until we finally uh, have a split, and then I'll go off and do my uh, my X Files Lutheran podcast, and then you can go on you know increasing the kingdom because Zelwyn <laughs> is the most pious of all of us. Uh, but hopefully we won't come to that kind of a split. No, I doubt it. I doubt it. We're going to be fine. But anyway, yeah, so people have asked us about this for a while, and someone even asked about skinwalkers, and I'm like, ooh, can I do a full hour on it? But I don't think I can, but I'll try. But we're going to we're gonna go with uh, giants and the Nephilim, and I'm going to say and the, because that's part of the discussion. Are there giants in the Bible? That's an unequivocal yes. Yes. <laughs> and, are the, and are the Nephilim giants? If so, in what way? If not, why not? So that's what we're going to talk about. As you all know, the Book of Enoch is, uh, you know, might as well be put in the in the back of your Bibles because it's a little bit of a handy guide to understanding what's going on in Jude and other things. It's, it gives you sort of a a good idea of what Second Temple Christians are believing about, say, Genesis, for example. And so you heard from the Book of Enoch at the very beginning, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, why Why look at that? Why read it? Well, it informs a lot of this. Is it scripture? No, but at least part of it is because part of it gets quoted in the Bible. So at least that one chunk would have to be, right? Right. I suppose now this is going to turn into a Jude episode. Well, all of them are, you know. <laughs> the amount of time in which something will eventually become a discussion of Jude with word fitly is basically, <laughs> it's inevitable. It's just, well, it's well, going to happen. We're living in Jude's times, you know? Uh, so, I mean, the first question is why I talk about this? And I think the answer is pretty simple. This is one of those subjects that is really popular right now. It really has a resurgence. And you got to be careful because some of the stuff that we're actually going to endorse, or at least I will endorse, will be also endorsed by crazy people, but that doesn't reflect of like my whole theology. If we say that Nephilim are giants and that these Nephilim are X and some crazy person on YouTube says the same thing, that doesn't mean we believe all the same things. Because that crazy right. person on YouTube also believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in the Trinity too. That wouldn't poison that and you share that belief with them. So... So one view that might sound odd simply because it's an ancient view or whatever, it, you know, you shouldn't associate it with everything uh, that you hear in modern times. You know, uh, as ancient aliens became a very popular thing, big in the 70s and then huge in the mid-2000s, people began to talk about things like the Anunnaki and races of giants and genetic mixing and things like that. And so it all this whole discussion of the Nephilim got wrapped up into these, this kind of pop culture theology. And we want to separate it from that a little bit, but understand that uh, again, not everything that these kind of out there channels are saying is entirely wrong. You just have to have some discernment as you look at things. Right. You know, you're going to be, and we're going to tackle this question in another episode, but how to handle reading non Lutheran sources, for example. And, you can glean a lot of good things from non-Lutheran sources. You just have to use discernment. And some people aren't ready for that. Right, right. Well, maybe maybe the best way to just start this discussion then would be to just pick up with its first mention. Yeah, so, so why don't you go ahead and six. Yeah, go ahead and tell us, tell us, tell the folks at home. Where we're at. So the Nephilim, of course, are very prominent in the flood account in Genesis chapter six. In fact, it says in uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So that's, that's where Nephilim start. But it's not the only place in the Bible where the Nephilim are mentioned. But I think we should start here and kind of talk about what's going on here before we move forward. So what, yeah. do, you want, what do you want to do with this, Willie? 
Yeah, because there's going to be two major questions. One, what does the word Nephilim mean? But really, most of the debate revolves around who the sons of God are. Right. But let's talk about the definition of Nephilim. And I'm going to go ahead and just burst some bubbles right at the beginning. Get it out of the way. Go the for definition it. isn't clear. And so someone's going to come up and go, ah, it means Nephal. It comes from Nephal for the fallen, so it means the fallen ones. Well, nah, we don't know that. That's not entirely clear. We, If we take the... Uh, it makes sense if we take it that the sons of God are fallen angels who saw the daughters of men and had children with them. Then, okay, then you got the kind of that fallen connection. But etymologically, we don't really know. Another one, uh, like I saw, you know, shared recently, is that Nephilim means tyrant. Again, no real exegetical support for that, but it sounds good if you're writing a book in the 50s and want to talk about communists or whatever. <laughs> but that's really not there in the word. The word right. is a bit ambiguous to us, if we're being honest. Now, not really ambiguous to the ancients. Right. Okay. Because what does the Septuagint say? Well, the Septuagint says gigantes, right. giants. The giants. But, but before we get to that, um, I do want to say a part of the reason why Nephilim is uncertain is because it's only used in a couple of places. And since Hebrew is something that, you know, fell out of usage, a lot of these rare words, especially ones that only occur a couple of times like this, yeah, you can guess at what they mean, but, you know, there's only so far that you can go. Yeah. So that's part of why Nephilim is so uncertain as to yeah, its exact meaning. And, and etymology is tricky. Guys, if I can teach you anything about linguistics, it's that etymology really does not determine the usage of a word or the right. definition of a word. You've got to be really, really careful with that. It's context and usage that determines the definition. Well, and I think the and, best way to show that is yeah. whenever we are dealing with something like uh, double entendre or if we're mm -hmm. using a word in a way that, you know, just kind of making it up on the spot kind of a thing, the word has nothing to do with its dictionary definition. It has everything to do with how it's being used and the intent of it in that moment. I mean, that is how words are used. A mm -hmm. word never bears its full, all of its possible meanings in any one given spot. It only means one thing. That's just basic language. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And so so the other time you get the word is Numbers 13, 33. Right. Now, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come of the Nephilim. And we were in our own side as grasshoppers, and so we were in their side. Kind of a wooden translation there, sorry. But... But that, that's where you get a very clear picture that they're big. Right. Okay. We were in our own as grasshoppers, and so we were on their side. Now, you could say, well, that's metaphorical or whatever, but you're going to get some very vivid descriptions of giants in the scripture, most notably Goliath, for example. Right. But really, Numbers 13 is where you get the idea that the Nephilim are huge. And I think going to Numbers 13 is the, the, the best place we can go to actually kind of explain these things. Because if the sons of Anak are tall, and they are, you know, the Nephilim also who are equated with them must have been equally tall. Now, yeah. if you want to take them as, you know, however you, their activities, you know, whatever they're doing, that's another question. But you can't really get around the fact that they are tall based on Numbers 13. Yeah, so so you've got like, uh, so, and, and really here, I'll, I'll make another giant connection just to kind of solidify this, if I can. So you've got the Anakim, so the sons of Anak, as we just read. Right. Okay. So the Nephilim, sons of Anak, or Anakim, we're just calling that, all right, who come of the Nephilim, mm -hmm. okay, uh, we're in our own side as grass. So they're giants. What's another connection to the Anakim of the Nephilim as giants? Well, King Og in the Bible, who is explicitly shown to be gigantic and a some kind of monster guy, in Arabic is the Uj Ibn Anak. So in Arabic tradition, he is described as an Anakim, as of the Anakim. Well, there you go. <laughs> We're doing deep cuts, as that one was not expecting. <laughs> but. I, I didn't expect going into Arab Arabic connections today, that's for sure. But, I mean, and, and, and Og explicitly in the book of Deuteronomy, his bed is said to be how big? I forget. It's in like several yep. cubits. Right. 
I mean, which is just kind of an indirect way of saying that the dude was huge. Yeah, they're not describing like, oh, he's got a big bed. I mean, I guess they could. And granted, the bed there is related to pagan sacrifice and pagan rituals. But they're hammering the point home that he's giant. Everybody right. agrees he's a, he's a giant. And the, the point being that God gave Israel victory over this giant. And, you know, when humanly speaking, it should have been impossible. I mean, that was mm-hmm. kind of the point in Deuteronomy. So, right. Yeah, so I mean, the Nephilim, based on you know just what we see in the Bible itself, without even going to the Vol- uh, going to the Septuagint or the Vulgate, which which we will, you can see that whoever they were, they were big boys, right? Yeah, right. So you know, before we and it'll probably next second before we get into a, what are these things? We've got we have to concede that there are that the Nephilim are connected to giants, and that there are giants in the Bible. Uh, we were talking in the pre-recording about, you know, this connection between Goliath and them because of when Joshua exterminates the Anakim, Goliath of Gath, it comes from one of the areas where the Anakim were kind of left over. So it all gets kind of, you know, interesting, right? Muddled, yeah. <laughs> Muddled. Or or that or that dude with six toes. Right. Six on, on each, on, yeah, on each feet. Right. Yeah, and six fingers. And six fingers. I mean, there's there's that guy too. So, I mean, they're they are they're they're huge. They're they're kind of monstrous in a way. I mean, that that's who they are. And listen, my brothers, call me anti Simonex if you want, but I believe Goliath was a giant. I mean, it clearly says. (laughs) Yeah, dude was nine foot tall. And the interesting thing about biblical giants is there is something different. They're they're always connected to something evil. They're bloodthirsty, and we'll say demonic, okay? Because that's sin is crouching at the door, as it were. They're not like the people with gigantism that we see today. Now, while six fingers might be a deformity, they, they don't. They, they're described as really good in battle. They're fearsome. A lot of the giants we see today, respects to Andre, but a lot of the giants we see today uh, are not really fearsome. They're just big, and they're in poor health. Right. So it's not a pituitary gland issue that we're dealing with. There is something genetically in them and spiritually in them. And you're and you're looking at things, you have to look at this through biblical eyes. That there are generational curses related to this. So that genetics so that spiritual maladies and genetics are actually really connected biblically speaking. Right? And so that curse is passed down along the familial lines. And part of this curse seems to be they're, they're born as bloodthirsty giants, men prone to violence and men particularly made to cause damage. So there's a connection then between you know, genetics curses and physical appearance and spiritual disposition. Well, just these aren't giants, but let's let's take the New Testament for example. You have the uh, the man among the tombs, such exactly. as Legion and stuff like exactly. that. Exactly, exactly. Um, they are demon possessed, and how are they described? They're described as having immense strength, um, yep. able to burst chains and that sort of thing. You know, the, the possession in some mm-hmm. cases does lead to this kind of superhuman strength. Yeah, and I was actually going to mention them a little bit later. Yeah, I mean. You know, why are the Nephilim one of the causes of the flood and how they end up after the flood is a trickier question to answer, but how that happens. You know, creation is allergic to these things. Creation is allergic to them because they're demonic. That's going to be one of the things I want to make clear. Like whether you believe it's whatever you take the sons of God to be, whatever happens is demonic and creation is allergic to it. So it's the same thing with the Gadarene demoniac. What happens to him or what happens to the to the, the person who's possessed is he's fleed from the demons. But the demons are then put into the herd of swine, and then the herd of swine has the good sense to uh run off into the sea. Well, that's that's also partly because the, the sea is the abyss, which is the you know yeah. the, the biblical home of the demons. But that's 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 a whole nother discussion right there. Right, but they're still being cast off is the point. Right. And and so it's there's a whole lot going on. Maybe I'm getting too typological here. I mean, creation is allergic to things and creation reacts to things. The sky darkens at the crucifixion of our Lord. That could be an episode in itself right there. (laughs) Right. Yeah, creation reacting to what is evil and creation 
how creation reacts to what is good. That will be a good one. But for now, we've got to take a break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. We're talking about giants and other sundry things here on this very special episode. All right. So, well, let's let's actually get into the text in a little bit and uh, talk about some views of who the sons of God are and how that might determine how we understand who the Nephilim are, who are still sure. giants either way you cut it. But go on. Sure. And maybe, and maybe just as a, a way of kind of leading into that discussion... Um, it is worth noting that the earliest translations that we have of the Old Testament, uh, the, Vulg- the Vulgate in particular from Jerome, and also the Septuagint, both render Nephilim as giants, gigantes. And the King James Version. Also, yes. Right. The only version you need. The so. only version that matters. <laughs> uh, but there, But there are a lot of questions on... You know, where the Nephilim come from. I mean, it's it clearly says the sons of God from the daughters of man, but what does that mean exactly? And I suppose that's that's kind of the the major question, right? You know, what what exactly is going on here? What is happening? How do they actually come about? And how does this relate to the later Nephilim, the you know the sons of Anak and that sort of thing? You know, how do, how do these things all connected? But I I don't know. I think I think the safest thing to say is that we don't know exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, you know, largely what I'm going to present is what's going to be the second temple understanding of it. Right. And Zelwyn is probably going to present a later, you know, like a few centuries later interpretation of it. And I'll give that <laughs> timeline too. <laughs> but I mean, so, so if, if we don't ultimately know exactly what is meant by these things, that doesn't mean that, you know, there haven't been attempts, which is what we're going to be talking about. And I think if if one way makes you more uncomfortable or if another way makes you, you know, whichever way you want to go, I just don't think we can be ultra dogmatic about it just because we can't know. You know? Yeah. And if, and if you don't agree, don't go re or if you have questions, just go over to WordFitly Posting, ask the questions or shoot us an email or, uh, you know, something. And we'll be happy to to explain this more in depth if you'd like, because this is one of those perennial questions that keeps that keeps coming up, especially nowadays. You know, I, I do firmly believe in studying a lot of Second Temple literature because I do think it gives us a a very important look into a lot of the texts, even of the scriptures, because it shows you what the worldview of people who believed in the supernatural and in the Bible, it gives you that kind of idea of the world that Jesus is in. Right. So not so much the, the view of the Sadducees, but maybe more the view of the Pharisees. Because, you know, Sadducees not really believing in angels, they're really not going to like the book of Enoch. Right. right. And so I, I just think it's it's really rather important. And understand, you know, a lot of the reason why some of the views expressed here are uncomfortable is they go against things that we've been taught or things that we've assumed were always true and always believed. Right. So. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe, maybe the best way to go then is to deal with, as you say, the older of the two interpretations of the second temple 
um, Book of Enoch. So yeah. take us into it, Willie. <laughs> well, they are going to believe that the sons of God are angels that consort with the daughters of men and the Nephilim are produced because of this. They are going to be fallen angels that are somehow able to reproduce with men. And you get all of these different lines, you know, of kings, Rephaim, for example, I mean, which is kind of related to the Anakim. But so you get this idea that there are fallen angels who are able to reproduce, and that is considered demonic. They reproduce because they reproduce with the daughters of men, and they create a demonic race of things that become these giants. And the text is also going to say the mighty men of old, men of renown, and that you can think about the demigods in mythology there. You know, that's where you get all of these pagan kind of characters, your Hercules, for example, and things like that. How are these things able to be real? Well, they're actually demonic in, in nature, in origin, in origin and in nature. And so I don't really know how esoteric you want to get in this as far as what Second Temple people are believing. But let me, so you've got Nephilim. Okay, so these this monster race born of these, you know, bastard creatures of angels and men. And they, and they do things that are so wicked, it leads to the flooding of the earth. Okay. So everybody is wiped out except for Noah and his family. Yet the Nephilim pop back up in numbers 13. So how are they able to pop back up? Well, according to the second temple literature, like first Enoch, you get these, um, false gods who Judah sinned in worshiping in the past, and they're called Rephaim. They're now in the grave. They're basically demonic spirits, okay? They're the denizens of Hades, denizens of the dead. And so the Second Temple people began to believe, and First Enoch makes this very clear, that many, if not most, of the demonic beings encountered, the ones possessing individuals, are the spirits of these dead ancient kings, these dead Rephaim, these Nephilim, these fallen demonic creatures, if their spirits are left over. So their bodies are destroyed, but they're demons. So the bodies they inhabit are gone, but now these demons are able to kind of live on and re-inhabit post-flood. Okay. Does that make sense? And that's a very concise way of putting it. It gets (laughs) more complicated, but... No, I, I think I think that makes it pretty clear. And even if even if that makes us uncomfortable, especially with our assumptions about how the world works and that sort of things, or even about how the Bible works, I think you've done a fair job of presenting what would have been a common Yeah. And again, that wouldn't have been all of the spirits. You know, right. all of the demonic spirits, but a lot of them, the ones that are doing a lot of the possessing. Because what what did the sons of God do? They essentially possessed humans and turn them demonic. I mean, it's back to the Gadarene demoniac. They're, it's kind of, you can almost look at in that view, what the sons of God, what the angels, the fallen angels would have done to the daughters of men as something of a more severe possession. But is it, I mean, does, does first Enoch understand it as possession or do they actually understand it as purely hybrid? Does that make sense? Well, I mean, the offspring are hybrids. Okay. But, but they're still demonic. Right. And, and and there's not that, it really appears for the Second Temple people that, you know, this, this idea, and we'll talk about this more when um, when we get to the view you're going to present, that, d- that angels can't reproduce, mm-hmm. that, that doesn't enter into their minds. I mean, Jesus says angels can neither marry nor, neither marry nor are given in marriage. It's a few centuries post-Christ before exegetes start to say, oh, that means that, that Genesis 6 couldn't possibly be angels. So that, that doesn't enter into the thinking of Justin Martyr, for example. Sure. Well, what did Martyr say? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. I want to I want to get to okay. yours, and then I'll tell you what they said. Okay, okay. Well, and so the, the later interpretation, the one that's probably much more common these days, is the idea that the sons of God refer to the, the, the descendants of Seth, the godly line, you know, still men, but those who were following after God, whereas the daughters of man refer to the descendants of Cain, uh, the ungodly line, you know, as, as yeah. we see previously in Genesis chapter five, uh, or is it five? No, excuse me. It's four where, you know, Cain eventually gives birth. Uh, his line gives birth to Lamech, who is, you know, a very violent man. 
you know, who kills a man just for wounding him, that sort of thing. So we have this this idea that what you have here is not something supernatural happening, but rather a a mixing of those who should have been following after God, basically because they're apostatizing in the days just before the flood. It is that great wickedness that, you know, leaving only Noah as the, you know, the last godly man on earth that causes the, the flood to happen. Yeah. And I mean, the tricky thing is there, they could have just said sons of Seth. Right. <laughs> and so by saying son of God and sons of God, when used in the Bible, will often refer to angels. If it doesn't refer to angels, it refers to believers. So, okay, right. there you get a set thing. But, okay, so you go to Genesis 10. It's a genealogy of Noah's sons. Okay, the right. son of, the son of, the son of. And, I mean, Genesis 6 could have said, the sons of Seth saw the daughters of Cain. But then again, Luke also says that Adam is the son of God. Yeah, and, and we're sons of God. And we're sons of God. Right, so. but I'm saying following the there's a disconnect between Genesis six and Genesis 10 because Genesis 10's, you know, genealogy works the way it does. So, and, and also you have to think, why would demons want to cohabitate with women, with earthly, earth women, with humans? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> women are easy is what you're saying. <laughs> right. Uh, there's a, there's a movie I haven't thought about in a long time. Uh, so, and I think the idea is kind of this, though. They want to destroy the birth of man. And why do they want to destroy the birth of man, true man? Because it was through this line that salvation would come. Right. So genealogy is important to the Bible. You have to corrupt that bloodline somehow. And I suppose this works even with the sons of Seth one. But it really works if you make it sort of not human. <laughs> I mean, think about But something so significant happens. Here, it, it has so corrupted man, this sons of God and daughters of men, that the earth has to be destroyed. And that only this preserved bloodline is able to make it. Why? Because the Savior is going to come through it. And so the idea is kind of that the demons are trying to thwart the coming of the Savior. Well, now, on the other hand, though, I, I see what you're saying totally. But we also have uh, Genesis 6, verse 11 the earth mm -hmm. is corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. It does not yeah. say the earth was filled with the Nephilim. Right. And that's why the earth right. was destroyed. This is true. But this product here, why is it filled with violence? Because they've become demonized. Well, and I'm I, not I, denying that at all. Yeah, yeah. No, I know you're not. And I, and I think that we often forget the connection between violence, the shedding of blood and sin and demons. Now, it's very interesting with, with Cain, how sin is personified. Mm -hmm. sin is crouching at the door. So sin is anthropomorphized with him. Mm -hmm. And so, and what is Cain's sin? Yeah, you can go idolatry, everything, but it's really born of violence, the shedding of blood. And so as the world becomes more in under the power of Satan, they become more violent. Yeah, a hundred percent. Well, and even, so, even, so, and we agree it's connected. Yeah. Right. Well, even Romans, Mm -hmm. Paul presents sin in very anthropomorphic terms, right? Yeah. It is yes, the power yes. which possesses me. Like, I, yeah. I'm not even in control of myself because sin is is ruling yeah. me kind of a thing. And that's where I'm pushing. I want to push back against, you know, Augustine just a little bit, which I'll do again a little bit later, but which is rare for me, is that, you know, sin is more than just absence of good, by the way. Sin's a something. I know we like to talk about it not being something, but the Bible describes it as a something. It, if it's crouching at the door, it's something. Sure. <laughs> you know? Sure. Um, and I'm not saying it's a demon or a creature per se, but it is something that is dangerous to you, that can have power over you. And if we just if we reduce it to, oh, it's just the absence of good, I'm like, well, that's still kind of bad news for you. But it's more than that. And again, I'm not endorsing everything that I've read or explained from the Second Temple either. I hope everybody knows that. <laughs> just uh, to make that perfectly yeah, clear. Yeah, I'm just man. showing you that how different <laughs> they would have they would have viewed things. And I find it very interesting to talk about. And much more interesting than than the than the medieval scholastic speculations. Much more interesting to me. Or the Second Temple stuff. Because sure. that, that intertestamental period, very important. So anyway. So let's talk a little bit about then the history of the interpretation. So you're going to have 
at the time of Jesus and up through a few centuries, you've got the interpretation that that it's the that it's fallen angels taking on the daughters of men. You know, so and again, we don't endorse just because uh, Moses and Enoch are quoted in Jude doesn't mean that we endorse everything there. But it's kind of showing you what that they're they're doing. Now let's go a little bit further later. You know, later um, later biblical exegetes. Okay, so Justin Martyr uh, and Irenaeus are going to are two examples who are going to accept that the sons of God are angels. They take Genesis really at face value. Now later on, not much later, but later the church fathers are going to say, well, if they're if angels don't have bodies, how can they conceive with a woman? Okay, how can they have sex with a woman? And then they're going to start using Matthew 22, you know, angels don't marry. So you're going to get John of Damascus, who's going to sort of really start to flesh out this idea that the angels are passionless and whatever. But I mean, how can a fallen angel be passionless, dude? Don't know. So things are getting a bit more sophisticated. And the idea that angels could, even if they could take on bodies and have babies, it becomes, they don't believe it. And so you get to Augustine, and Augustine's really the one who promotes the idea that it's not angels, but the sons of Seth. And so from Augustine becomes everything. And really the sons of Seth view comes about via a sophistication of our understanding of the nature of angels. How much would you say that that was the result of just kind of a change in the interpretation, you know, just kind of maybe even as a polemic kind of a thing? And how much do you think of it was because of the the oncoming of Greek thought among the church fathers. Yeah. um, Well, and, you know, speaking of that, like the oncoming Greek thought, um, one of the things that comes out of Augustine again is the idea that this is really just a polemic against pagan mythology. And so, you know, Augustine's going to use it more that way. Like it's sort of a poetic way of fighting against pagan mythology there. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. But that's also a very Greek thing to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, Augustine, you know, what does Augustine say about the about the Platonists, you know, <laughs> that it leads to God. So I love the church fathers because they say things that would make all of us very uncomfortable today. And I do like how, I don't know, the, the theology is, is, it isn't messy. It's very clear, but they're more than willing to to be like, hey, let's take this other source here and say, what can we learn from it in a way that we would not be comfortable with today. Now, is it, whether that's good or bad. Augustine right. is, you know, of course, the church father I have particular devotion to. Uh, and so I'm not denigrating him here at all. But he's also very much a man of his time. And people are not willing to let Augustine say what Augustine says. So you'll have Baptists who claim that Augustine was one of them. Right. Because they can cherry pick what he says about grace and ignore what he says about the sacraments. Well, Augustine is is kind of like Luther in that sense. You know, the the great men of church history, everybody wants to claim them. Yeah, everyone wants to claim Luther, but nobody wants to read Bondage of the Will, right? Right. Even though the confessions tell us we're kind of bound to it. (laughs) Neither here nor there. (laughs) But that's neither here nor there. Formula of Concord episode when? (laughs) I want to do a a small card articles and Formula of Concord uh, dual episode. Yeah, see now now you're just you're just getting fired up here. I think I, I think am. all this talk about giants has got you just, you know, all worked up and you're you're just ready to go. Right. Exactly. Hundred <laughs> percent. It's your fault. You said, Hey, let's go out of the gate this season with something spicy, and you knew, you knew that this would get me worked up. <laughs> the audience soon- right now is right now is still like, what's a refiim? <laughs> what are we talking about? What happened? This podcast got weird. What do you mean got weird? We've been <laughs> weird. Yeah, and so so that's really the the two competing competing viewpoints. Now, I do think that in the next segment we're going to talk about either way you take it, you're looking at a demon influenced world and a demon haunted world and how we can what we can do with that. Are there nephilim today? What do we do to fight against the demonic today? I think that's that's a that's a good way to to kind of, what do we say, uh, bring a practical application to this discussion of six-fingered giants. <laughs> we are nothing if not practical. I love it. Right. So we got to come up on a break. Any any last words on, on that? 
No, I think all that I want to say just before we go to break is that, as I said at the beginning of this discussion, we can't ultimately know, you know, for certain because the Bible does not make it very explicitly clear. But either way you go, you know, we're going to see that this does have practical application, as we will show in the next segment. So we're on our next break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken on with the Grills here with Zelman Heidi. We're talking about Nephilim, giants, and the demonic influence in the world. Well, Zelman, we hinted a little bit about some possible practical applications. Instead of just debating over who these sons of uh, God are and who the giants are, we know there are giants. And we know that they had a demonic influence in the world, so much so that God commands them to be destroyed. Joshua is told to get rid of the the Anakim. And we have the people of God waging war against several giants or races of giants throughout Scripture. So we know they're demonic. Now, do we still feel the influence of the demonic in the world today? And are what are we to do about it? I think that's a good way to uh, wrap up the discussion. Sure. And maybe, maybe the best way to start that discussion would be just to talk a little bit about why God wants them destroyed. You know, why does he send the flood, for example, to destroy the men? Why does he command Joshua to destroy the Anakim? Uh, why do we see other giants who are, you know, killed by various people in the Bible? You know, what is it about the giants that God does not permit them to continue? Like his judgment upon them is pretty swift, actually. You know, he, he is not patient with these things. Why, why is that the case? Well, you know, they're obviously demonic. Uh, their hands are swift to shed blood, which is one of the things that God hates. Sure. And if you don't trust me, trust the Bible. It says God hates that. <laughs> I didn't write it. Uh, and so, uh, <laughs> you know, what do you do when, when Joshua and his boys are rolling up to destroy the Anakim? What do you do with love the sin or hate the sin on that one? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole... destruction of Canaan thing. I mean, you you really have to keep that in mind, and especially how God is laying out judgment upon Canaan in general, not just the Anakim. But again, I think it it really goes back to this point of we have to preserve the people of God for the sake of the coming Savior. Right. Right. it's It's for God's honor and it's for God's glory, but also there is a purpose to this. You know, one, God's glory being being shown through the vessels fit for destruction. Mm-hmm. A la Romans nine, uh, you know they're they're akin to Pharaoh in that way, um, but but the other is yeah God bringing about there's a purpose for this and why God is um, allowing this why God is going to to have them destroyed. They're violent. They they move people away from the faith. They encourage idolatry, which is going to lead to the destruction of God's people as they go after these false gods. Once they become wrapped up with false gods, they too develop hands that are swift to shed blood and lying tongues and things like that. This is the history of Israel over and over in the Old Testament. When they go after false gods, well, they begin to do evil things. And it begins with tolerating things, doesn't it? Right. The, the, the unbelieving wife brings the idols into the household. Right. And it's all downhill from there. Well, and, and then because of this sin of the parents in this case, that's where you get these giants in the first place. You know, even whatever way you want to take it, you know, as, as you know, where the Nephilim before the flood came, 
we see them still cropping up in the connection with idolatry, in connection with Canaan, in connection with Egyptians, in, you know, in connection with all of these demonically influenced cultures mm-hmm. is where these things keep cropping up. And so right. they are an expression of their devotion to the demonic, I think is, right. is a, a good way to put it. Yes, most definitely. And of course, it's not only born through violence, it's born through sexual sin, Mm-hmm. You know, all kinds of other evil things, even down to uh, wicked weights and measurements, which God is really particular about <laughs> in the Bible. There's another episode in there. Yeah, God's economy is actually very ordered. Right. <laughs> We're going to do a full hour on usury and false measurements. That would be a fun one. That'd be a spicy one. They're not ready for that. And if you want to know, you know, check out the canons of the Council of Nicaea and what they say about interest. Then get back to us. <laughs> and then we'll talk. Right. <laughs> but I mean, so when we're dealing with these demonic influences and how they come to expression in these various cultures, I think that is something that does have application to today because mm-hmm. we see the same sort of thing happening, even in, I would argue, uh, some of the physical things that are happening too. I mean, you can't tell me that you're looking at all of this genetic experimentation and tell me that this is all just for good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the the transhumanist movement and trying to overcome the way God has made us. I saw right. a very disturbing uh, group somewhere, Facebook, Twitter, I don't know, social media, possibly evil. It was Mormon transhumanism. And they use Joseph Smith's words about humans eternally progressing to mean that it's good for us to be transhumanists because that's the point is to overcome kind of what we are. And I'm like, yikes. yikes. My goodness. Yeah. Uh, how much evil can you put in one Facebook group? <laughs> well, I mean, because you, you see all of the stuff happening like with transgenderism and stuff like that, basically saying that, you know, we can make ourselves into what we want to be. You know, it's, yeah. it's our self-determination that determines who we are. Kind of thing. Yeah, and, and they come up with these very crude methods of doing so. Right. And and then we're going to end up with very sophisticated ways of doing so. If it's, if it's genetic manipulation in the womb or, you know, at conception or uh, downloading someone's consciousness into the cloud or something like that. All these, these weird things that, you know, that fine line between magic and technology. Right. And we, we we want to pretend that they aren't connected. But how many times do we have to talk about this? How many times do we have to talk about demons and rocket science? You know, and things like that. And, and all of that, uh, you know, the Jack Parsons and everything, we, we, which right. we've spoken about. Uh, Groom Lake and whatnot. We've talked about that at length in some episodes. But anyway, we don't want to get off uh, on that road. Again. Just yet, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, the, the point being that because of these demonic influences, because of this pursuit of the demonic, it leads to these kinds of things expressing themselves, and God brings judgment upon it. And I think what we see happening in our culture today, especially with, you know, the heavenly, how do you want to say, you know, pursuit of the demonic in some circles, especially very influential circles, uh, we are seeing some of these things not I, I'm not going to say return like we're returning to the pre-flood days or something like that. I'm, that's not what I'm saying, but rather that we are seeing similar sorts of things happening all over again so that, you know, there are horrors beyond our comprehension. Yeah. If that makes well, sense. let's, you know, go, kind of go back to Genesis, the mighty men of old men of renown. You got the demigods and the false gods, mm-hmm. and they're represented in very similar fashion all across the world. We talked about that. All these right. cultures have very similar demons that they worship that they call gods. Right. And they'll have sometimes very serpentine appearances, or they're always almost always giants, you know, things like that. Um, and those demons are, although on a short leash because of our Lord's mercy, they're still out there. We're still warned about them, but they're going to come back in different guises. And what we're really seeing though is the emergence of just outright paganism again. Sure. We're going to see that. 
And I believe that you're going to see it more in the digital form, or it's going to be under the guise of so-called interdimensional beings or whatever. Uh, there's going to be some stuff like that in the future uh, where people are going to be led astray by that. And I, now I know we've stepped one big foot in, into conspiracy theory territory here, but it's not conspiracy theory. The book of Revelation warns us of these deceptive signs in the heavens, warns us of talking images, warns us of these deceptions that will deceive, if possible, even the elect. And so there are going to be, as there have been throughout history, very convincing signs that will woo people away. And it's just going to be these same old demons doing their stuff. But as the world comes closer to an end, their tricks are going to be amplified. Right, right. I mean, that's just, that's there in the Bible. So the same thing that's happening in Genesis 6, the same thing that's happening in Joshua, same thing that's happening in, say, you know, First Samuel or whatever, is happening now in a much more intensified way. Well, I mean, Jesus himself says, you know, as the days of Noah, right. so, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. I mean, they're going to be, we're going to be caught off guard if we're not ready for it. Yeah. Just as, and, just as they were. And yeah, and how quickly Christians will embrace. I mean, listen, they embraced medical technologies way too soon throughout history without any discernment at all. And you can go all the way back to, you know, artificial birth control or whatever. There was a very quick one, which has really been the first stepping stone into, you know, if you think about it, that is Christians saying, no, God doesn't open and close the womb. And that's one step away from saying that, well, I can determine what is in my womb. Right. And so it kind or of... Or if I have a womb. Or if I even have a womb. Or if I don't have a womb, I want a womb. Yeah. And so people are going to get up in arms about that line. But it everything has a beginning, and you can kind of see it happening there. And then with certain you know, artificial you know, forms of even conception that have happened. All of these things have led to various ethical problems, but you don't hear Christians really talking about it enough because we get too emotional. Well, that's going to hurt somebody's feelings to talk about this. And some things, yes, you do have to be delicate about and have some sense when you sit down and talk with someone. And yet that doesn't take away from the fact that maybe some of these technologies are not godly. But we have, but even Christians, like I said, have dipped their toes into what amounts, into what is the beginnings of genetic manipulation. And that really concerns me. Yeah, because it's always presented as if this is just going to be only good. You know, Correct. we're going to solve diseases. We're going to get rid of all of these problems, you know, be able to eliminate defects. You know, it's always presented in this very positive sense. Yes. But then you come down to even simpler things. Like, let's even just take something like abortion. You know, yeah. it's always presented as, oh, it's for the, the safety of the mother or something like that. But the vast majority of them are for convenience. Mm-hmm. You can't tell me that people are going to take something as powerful as genetic manipulation and just use it only for Well, yeah, and abortion was sort of where I was going with this, too. Yeah, so, you know, kids with Down syndrome or birth defects, they get aborted because parents don't want them. Right. But it's always presented as loving. Oh, their quality of life would be low. And who who are we to say that? Yeah. Who are we to say that the mentally retarded can't have a good quality of life? Or the deformed? Are these people... I mean, sorry, Mephibosheth. Bad news for you. I guess David should have... Instead of giving you a seat at the table, he should have just killed you. Since you can't walk. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 bizarre. But hey, now we're back to... But now we're back to the demonic and the, and the swift to shed blood. Right. You know, so we need to we need to be careful about what we are willing to adopt and what we are willing to um, to allow. And you even take the genetic science out of it. I mean, look at what communications have done. Look what it's done to even church attendance or the way that we communicate with each other. Rather ironically, as we record this podcast, but (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's it's simply one of these very strange things and. And again, I'm not pronouncing a judgment upon everything. I'm simply saying, please have some discernment. Look at where these things are coming from. Look at what they're doing to people. Look at what they're doing to you. you well, know? because, and, and just to kind of make the, the connection to what we've been talking about more explicit too, because if we don't have discernment, you know, who's going to stop us from falling into these similar sort of demonic patterns that we see happening throughout the Old Testament? You know, there's a reason why giants appeared in Philistine culture because Mm -hmm. of the demonic. There's a reason why 
giants appeared among the Canaanites because of their wicked practices. You know, there's a reason why these things came about, and it is because of consorting with these demonic influences. If we're not careful with them, you know, if we don't see them for what they are, we may very well fall prey to them as well. Yeah, and I and I think that Christians have fallen into this lie that science is somehow not is somehow separate from the spiritual. You know, <laughs> that that it's not corrupted by sin in some way. And it's really strange. I mean, you, you do hear that a lot. And there's a lot of Christians who don't want to look passe, who don't want to look old-fashioned, who don't want to look like barbarians or whatever, or primitives. And so they just they just embrace everything and, you know, put up their little phony statistics or whatever and, and go on about it because the science says this. What about what God says? What about what your own dis- spirit of discernment says, which is the Holy Spirit within you? Discernment's a spiritual gift, by the way. And if you're swallowing everything that the liar throws at you, maybe pray for that gift. It's okay to pray for a gift. It says it in the Bible. <laughs> right. You know, and I don't know, maybe I just need to quit looking at Twitter or whatever. I mostly have Twitter for, you know, esoteric Twitter accounts and base Lutherans. <laughs> but I was going to say, I thought you were going to say, speaking of demonic things. But speaking of demonic things, but Twitter is actually very good. There's a way that you can tell, you know, what Lutherans to, there's a, to, to listen to and to not listen to. And I'll put it this way. The only Buffalo that I listen to is Zelwyn Heidi. <laughs> you are fired up today. I like yeah. it. Well, I mean, how do we, how do we want to close up this section then? Yeah. So since I've, since I've alienated half the audience here, our Twitter boys are good though. I do want to say, I love them. Keep, keep fighting the good fight guys. So yeah, let's wrap it up by saying this. I'm talking a little bit about, okay, so we've talked about who we beat you up with. Hey, you're probably listening to demons. Please stop listening to demons. Listen to the word of the Lord, go to church, be Christians and live your life as the Lord would have you live as, you know, as obedient subject of his kingdoms, but as soldiers in the Lord's army. Okay. Onward Christian soldiers that, you know, consider yourself like uh, Joshua's men, who are there to tear down strongholds and to rat out demons, because that's what you are called to do as Christians, right? You're called to struggle against your own passions, but to struggle with those demonic principalities that are out there. And you can do it, but you don't do it on your own. We've got leagues of angels that fight on our side, the Lord's holy angels, the ones who didn't fall and the ones who cannot fall, who the Lord sends to work on our behalf. We have the whole armor of God that we can put on, breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation, all of these things that we can use. The best thing you can do is to pray for yourselves, pray for your family, pray for your nation, be ever in prayer, praying for the mercy of the Lord upon us and for the strength to live as faithful Christians. You need to uh, gather around your other fellow soldiers, go to church, gather with like-minded Christians, just have regular conversations with them, live life together with them, have dinner together, You know, spend time with each other, build up that community, build up and strengthen it. Because Satan is going to send his armies, and he has many of unwitting, many an unwitting soldier out there willing to do his bidding, whether you know consciously or unconsciously. But let us consciously be soldiers. Let us consciously be those who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Fight against ourselves. Fight against not among ourselves, but against our own selves, against our own passions, and fight against those demonic forces from without with the word of the Lord, with the sacraments according to the Holy Spirit that is within all of us. Zelwyn? Well, I think I would say amen to all of that, certainly. And I would also point out that, you know, we are given weapons of warfare in the fight against the demonic and the influences of the world. You know, prayer and fasting. Uh, We have the blood of the Lamb and the, the testimony of Jesus. I mean, all of these things are what we have been given as a way of fighting against these things. So, we need not be afraid of Nephilim or any of the, the demonic influences which you know produce such things because we have one who is far greater, one who is seated on the throne and one who has overcome. You know, all these heavenly powers have been made subject to him and he will finally crush them under his feet. So don't worry about <laughs> the the giants in, in our day is what I'm saying because yeah. we have one far greater. Amen. 
Well, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com, slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zoe and Heidi. God love you, and God bless. And Benaiah struck down an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits tall. The Egyptian had in his hand a spear like a weaver's beam. But he went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. First Chronicles 11.